We'll turn in your copy of the scriptures or scroll in your Bible app, if you would, to the gospel of Luke, uh, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We're going through a sermon series through the gospel of Luke, and today we start a new chapter together. And so I want to explain to you a little bit of what you can expect uh, coming into this chapter and then get into the sermon itself. First of all, what we're going to encounter today is uh, the first uh, miracle, not the first miracle that Jesus performs in the gospel of Luke, but the first miracle that we'll look at together as a church in the gospel of Luke through our sermon series. Because if you look at the end of Luke chapter 4, you'll see there's actually two miracles that Jesus performs. We're just not talking about them at length today. Jesus delivers uh, someone from a demon, so a demon-possessed man. He delivers that person uh, from the demon. And then Jesus also heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So the Simon that you hear spoken about in this passage, that's Simon Peter. He goes into Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house. Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a fever, a high fever. This was a big deal. It's a big deal today. But right now we have lots more medicine at our disposal than, of course, they did in Jesus' days. And so Jesus literally says in Luke chapter 4, rebuked the fever and it was gone, miraculously, because of the power of Jesus Christ over that particular infirmity and over that particular individual. And it says that she actually got up right after that and started serving. So she's laying there sick, and then all of a sudden she gets up and starts serving. And so in verse 42, you'll see this, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 42. Let's just go back there for just a moment. It says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him. And would have kept him from leaving them, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so verse 40 of chapter 4 says, now when the sun was setting. Verse 42 says, and when it was day. So now it's a new day. And then verse 5 starts with the words, on one occasion. So we're still in that same day. A little time has passed from the last event, but still in that same day. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. He sat down and taught the people from the boat, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So there's a couple of things I want to point out to you as we look at this text today. Let's just walk through it together. Let's go back to verse 1. So it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. 
So the crowd is pressing on him to hear the word of God. Now, when you and I think of the word of God, we think of our Bibles, right? But you have to remember that this was happening at a time before the word of God had become the word of God. So this is pre-Bible. Bible is still being written, right? We're reading about that time. And so when the people came together and they said, we are coming together to hear the word of God, in the Greek, that's actually put in a term that's called the subjective ingenitive. <laughs> You're welcome. And what that means is that that's indicating source. And so, for example, it's, it's like this. It's like elsewhere in Scripture where we say, and this was the expectation of the Jewish people. What that really means is it was the Jews' expectation. It's pretty simple. But what that means in this text is that when people are coming together to hear the word of God, it literally means the crowd was there to hear God's words. God's words. So there was something about Jesus right from the very beginning that people knew this is different. And it wasn't just because of the miracles. I'm not making light of the miracles, but I think everybody thinks so much about the miracles, the miracles, the miracles. But if you look back in Luke 4, and I wish we had time to do it today, but we don't, you'll see the people were in awe, not only of the miracles, but with the authority with which he spoke, the way in which he taught, what he said. People were saying there's something different about this person. And so they were gathering together, just as Luke says in verse 1, to hear God's words. And they're standing there by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also the same thing as the Sea of Galilee. It's also the same thing as the Sea of Tiberias. They called it different things at different times, and we see that throughout the Scriptures. Verse 2 says this, And he saw two boats by the lake. Now, these boats, these aren't little rowboats. These aren't little dinghies. These are large commercial fishing boats. Peter was a fisherman by trade, Simon Peter, who we're looking at here primarily. And so he had these boats to catch fish, but it's not for a pleasure cruise, right? He's catching fish because this was his job. They're large boats. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus can get into the boat with all 12 of his disciples. So these are not tiny little boats. These are large fishing boats. And essentially what happens is uh, he saw two boats by the lake, verse 2. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. They're preparing to go fishing that evening. Fishermen essentially worked third shift. That's why later on in the passage, Peter says, we, we toiled all, what, night and took in nothing. And so they're washing their nets, preparing to go to work later on that day when it became dusk or when it became evening to uh, nighttime. And so Jesus sees these boats by the lake. And verse 3 says he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. It's like, Simon, do me a favor. Let's get further away from the land uh, and, quite frankly, further away from the people. They're pressing in. Jesus like, just want a little bit of personal space. So just backs away from the shore, puts away from the land. He's out in the water, and he sits down in the boat, and there's a little bit of space where he can address the crowd, and he teaches the people. Verse 4 says this. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Jesus is speaking with certainty and telling him to do something that he is ready to see done. Simon isn't as certain. Uh, Simon speaks in verse 5 and says this, Master, just letting you know, we toiled all night. We took nothing, nothing, nada, zilch, niente. We took in zero fish, not less fish, not small fish, no fish. We took in nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. 
But remember, if you look back in verse 42 of chapter 4, this was daytime. This was daytime. And so we have two things. Number one, Simon's like, I'm kind of, we haven't been having much luck with much, much, much production coming out of this lake as of lake. As of lake. You like that? As of late. But not only that, it's also daytime. Simon's like, I'm a third shift worker. The last shift was unproductive. We caught nothing. Simon and the fishermen are cleaning their nets, preparing to go fishing later. Fish would be closer to the surface during the darkness. Fish would not be descending all the way to the bottom of the lake. It's a deep lake, 140 feet deep at some points. And so they go out when the fish are towards the surface. Why? Because they're not, you know, they're not. You're about to see all I know about fishing, okay? It won't take long. They're not taking a rod and putting out some sort of a lure and dragging it along the ground. They're not doing anything at the bottom of the sea, none at all. They're dropping their nets in the water and dragging them as pretty close to the surface so that they would catch fish and be able to pull them up. And in order to do that, the fish have to be near the surface. And they're not going to be near the surface at high noon. So Simon has obvious reasons to be skeptical. Ah, we're going to go out. We're going to do this again. I mean, all right, fine, I'll do it. And they do. Pick it up in verse 6. It says, when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And that brings us to our first point today. And if you want to follow along, there's a sermon outline available to you at graceky.org or on our church app. Point number one, you need to remember that you worship a Savior King for whom nothing is impossible. A Savior King for whom nothing is impossible. Let me give you a couple of reasons that's true. First of all, Jesus is omniscient. He knows everyone and everything. When Jesus told Simon to go out at high noon, when nobody else would go out because nobody fishes at high noon, Jesus wasn't hoping for something. He knew exactly how this was going to turn out. He knew something was going to happen. Why? Because he knows all things. He knows all fish. He knows all scales on all fish. He knows the position of every fish. Without exception, Jesus knows everything. And here's something that I think people tend to forget. You do know that Jesus is the creator of the world, right? People tend to think Jesus kind of came on the scene when he came into the world through the Virgin Mary. That's when Jesus took on flesh, But Jesus has always existed as the second person in the Trinity. He came into the world through Mary, but that wasn't when, like, all of a sudden, that became the Trinity. That's not true. Jesus always existed. That's why you read in the Gospel of John, chapter 1 and verse 3, all things were made through him, Jesus, and without him was not anything that was made. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 2 says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created The world. And so Jesus knows everything about everything, not just because his father told him. Jesus knows everything about everything because he is very creator God. Jesus created all things. Uh, Colossians also says this, chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So when Jesus looks at Simon... And tells him it was time to get back out on the water. He did so without a doubt in the world as to what was going to happen. But not only is Jesus omniscient, he's also omnipotent. That means he's all powerful. Uh, Pick it up again, Luke chapter 5, verses 6 and following. 
When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And so it's not just that Jesus knew, like, yeah, I know fish are typically not at the surface, but I'm Jesus, kind of a big deal, I know everything, and today they happen to be at the surface. No. Jesus knows everything, but he's also all-powerful, and nothing is impossible for him. He brought those fish exactly where he wanted them so that he could do a miraculous work and stun everybody. But please don't read this without being just a little terrified. Verse 6 says their nets were breaking. Now, if we're familiar with this account, we're like, how cool is that? They didn't think they would catch any fish, and now their nets are breaking. I feel like Simon and the sons of Zebedee would look back and say, yeah, but they're my nets, bro. Like, like, like it's one thing to be excited that God is giving you a bunch of fish, but also this is my livelihood. And so Simon goes from thinking he's not going to catch any fish. This is clearly just a pleasure cruise, right? I don't even know if he took all of his crew, right? Because he's not going to catch any fish. Maybe a few, but certainly not a lot. And so he brings his nets and he's like, sure, I'll let it down when Jesus says, I've been fishing a long time and we're not going to catch any fish, but that's fine. Maybe there's some people in the crowd who are like, ooh, can I come? Sure, bro, you can come. It's fine. We don't even need all the crew. Just come on, hang out with Jesus. We'll go out on the lake. It's great. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh my goodness, this is exciting yet really scary. Because on the one hand, my nets are full of fish, and that's exciting. On the other hand, my nets are breaking, and I might lose the fish and lose the net, and then I won't be able to do my work tonight. I don't think they were doing the happy dance from the moment this happened. I think they were scared to death. They're out in the middle of a lake. It's not a lake where it's a really shallow lake. It goes to 140 feet deep. It's not like they had life jackets. Then they call for help, and people come over and help, and they bring all the fish onto their boats. Whew, good thing we didn't lose any of the fish. But it says right there in verse 7 that what happened? Their boats began to sink. Boats sinking never bring, wow, this is so exciting, we might go down. Look at how much fish. They're afraid for their lives. You will never be on a boat, a boat that starts to sink and not be afraid for your life. Wow, this is cool, we're going to get wet. Said no one ever. And so the boat is starting to sink. They have all these fish. They might lose the fish again into the water, and they might lose their lives. It was more than they could handle. But Jesus is powerful. Jesus brought the fish. Jesus knew that the nets would break. Jesus brought the other people to help. Jesus knew that the boats would sink or start to sink. And Jesus knew exactly how to get them safely to land, and he was never worried a single moment. Because Jesus not only knows everything, but he also can do anything. Fat lot of good it would be if he knows everything. Oh, yeah, I knew we were going to die. Wait, what? Like, that doesn't help. He's also able to do anything. He is all-powerful. And so then Peter has this response to another attribute of Jesus's. Not only is he omniscient, not only is he omnipotent, he's also holy. He's 100% pure. And so Simon Peter saw it, verse 8, he falls down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's not just saying, I'm like super embarrassed, can you get away? That's a common expression for when people realize they're in the presence of God. And And Peter's looking at Jesus saying, I uh, doubted you. 
I was with you when you healed my mother-in-law, <laughs> yet when you said go out into the deep and put down your nets, I told you there's nothing going to happen. And not only did it happen, it happened in abundance. And not only did it happen in abundance, we almost died. And not only did we almost die, you saved us. And so Peter falls at Jesus' knees and goes, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Translation, please don't kill me. Please don't judge me as my sins deserve. Just depart from me. You see this throughout the scriptures where people realize they're in the presence of a holy God where they say, would you just depart, like do me a solid and depart from me. For me to be in your presence right now is not going to result in my good. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinful man. God's omnis, his omnipotence, all-powerful, omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresent. He's always everywhere. Let me ask you a question. How do they make you feel? God's omnis. I remember one of the first scriptures that I committed to memory was Psalm, a portion of Psalm 139. Where David, who loves the Lord with all his heart, loves the Lord, reflects upon the fact that he can't escape God's presence. He cries out to God. You can read it in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit, Lord? Where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you're with me. Even there your right hand will hold me. But he's rejoicing in this. He's saying, nobody knows me like you, God. Nobody gets me like you. You get me. You know me better than I know me. And he loves that. He's reflecting on this saying, oh, my God knows me. My God loves me. He's with me always, everywhere. I can never flee his presence or his care. That's great. If you're a believer... If you're not a believer, you could reflect upon the fact that you can never flee God's presence, never flee God's sight, that he knows everything. And that's pretty terrifying. Same attributes, but they bring about a very different reaction for the believer and the unbeliever. I know God loves me. I'm thrilled to be in his presence always. But if you're not a believer, you come to the realization of the fact that God knows everything. Look at me. Everything. That he's holy, that he's pure, that he's righteous. And that the slightest sin in your life or my life stands out to him like an ink blotch on a pure white canvas. And you're aware of the fact that you're at odds with God. You know you fall woefully short, and he knows that. You know he knows everything about you, knows every secret, every hidden motive, every hidden thought. You know those things you want to say, but then you use self-control and don't say them? And so we're grateful that we don't hear them? Still heard it. 
He still hears it. You become aware of the fact that God knows everything about you. Now, if you hear God's omnis, his omniscience, he's all-knowing, his omnipresence, he's always everywhere, his omnipotence, he's all-powerful, and you feel negatively, listen to me, don't ignore that. Uh, Don't ignore that. In fact, lean into that. There's a reason you feel that, and that's because you know you don't stand a chance against 100% pure, holy, righteous, living, and quite frankly, angry God. But here's the thing. The rest of us are not unlike you. We don't stand a chance before a holy and righteous God either. And the only reason we feel differently about God's omnis, these attributes, is because we know God has never been apart from us. We know God knows everything. We know God knows me better than I know me and has seen everything, even the things that only I know, and still sent his son for me, and still showed his love for me, and still opened my eyes to not only see my sin, but to see his grace and mercy. We know the truth of Romans 6.23 that says, the wages of sin is death. There's a wage I owe God, and it's death. It's not good outweighing my bad. It's death. It can only be paid through blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, the scriptures tell us. But instead of being scared by that, we rejoice in the fact that we believe with all of our hearts that Jesus Christ paid that debt for us. That's the only difference that separates us as believers from unbelievers is that we know that God knows all of our sins and loves us anyway, not because he's chosen to overlook them, but he's chosen to take care of them. He sent his son into this world so that we can have a right relationship with him. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And because Jesus paid my wage, the wages of sin is death, he died to pay my way, I receive the gift of eternal life through him. And that's why when I hear about the omnis of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, I'm not scared by them. I rejoice in them. Not because I'm a perfect man, I'm not, but because I Know and love a perfect Savior who is my substitute. If you feel negatively about God's attributes, they make you feel awkward. God knows everything, always. He's never not seeing me. Don't ignore that. Lean into that. And realize God has you knowing that because today is the day of salvation. You have breath in your lungs. You have been given life again. You've not entered eternity yet. And so the fact that you can feel those things, don't uh, just put that out of your mind. i got other things to do. I'm going to try to change the subject. Super uncomfortable. Oh, friend, please don't do that. Please take a moment and consider where you stand before a holy and righteous God who knows everything who is always everywhere, who is all-powerful, but sent his son to die on the cross for sinners like you and like me. I'm going to pause and just pray for a moment. Would you pray with me? I want to pray that God would even use his word today to save souls. Lord, we rejoice in the truth of who you are. We can know so little about you Because there's so much. We could never plumb the depths of who you are. But we do know that you are all-knowing. That you're all-powerful. 
and that you're a God of judgment and justice and righteousness, but also of mercy and grace. And oh God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that you who are perfectly holy drew a people unto yourself, that you showed yourself to be uh, righteous and perfect and mighty to save. And I pray, Lord, even now, oh God, would you work in the hearts and minds of people, even in this room, people who hear this message, whom you know, but they know you not, who may not even know that they are your child. Oh God, would you change their heart? Would you come alongside them, even as you did Peter, and say, do not be afraid, but then call them out of darkness into your marvelous light. Save souls. Give the gift of faith. Would today be the day that someone hears you calling and does not harden their heart, but responds to faith? Give faith where it's needed. Help unbelief. Draw people out of darkness into your marvelous light because of the glorious gospel. Do it for your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pick it up in chapter 5, verse 8. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Hey, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. He could have looked to Simon when Simon said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, and been like, uh, True. Right? Simon wasn't speaking a, a lie. You are a sinful man, and so I will leave you. You're not worthy to be in my presence. I'm God. But he doesn't. He came for sinners like Simon. And so he looks at him and says, do not be afraid. He knows Simon's heart, knows that he was convicted of his sin, that he was deeply sorry and was aware of his presence before Jesus. He falls to Jesus' knees and says, depart from me. But Jesus doesn't depart from him. He says, do not be afraid. But he goes on and says something more. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. That Greek word there translated men, it's anthropoi, which means mankind, people. You will be catching people. Which brings us to our next point, and that's this. You need to remember that oftentimes the comfort of Christ precedes a command from Christ. It's not an if-then, I'll comfort you if you do this. No, no, no. It's just that oftentimes Christ brings his comfort into our lives and then calls us to do something because he's making us available to minister the ministry of reconciliation or the minister of comfort to somebody else. We could see this. There's a a sampling that I put in the outline. Let me just share some of them with you. It's not uncommon for God to do that. Matthew 14, 27, Jesus says, do not be afraid, and then calls Peter to walk on water. Matthew 28, 10, Jesus says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. His comfort with a commission. Calm down, now walk with me. Calm down, now serve me. Luke chapter 1, verse 13, the angel says to Zechariah, do not be afraid, and then calls him to fatherhood. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid and tell her she's pregnant, even though she's unmarried, with the Son of God. Acts 18 and verse 9, the Lord told Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Acts 27, 24, the Lord said, do not be afraid, Paul, 
but you must stand before Caesar because he was in a storm-tossed boat. What about you? Especially if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time. You probably have examples of when God comforted you so that you could comfort someone else. When God made you whole, brought healing to your life, but then also, not long after that, brings opportunities for you to walk with him and offer comfort to other people. When has that happened in your life? When can you recall back in your life where God has done a great work in your life, brought you comfort, made you whole in some way, but then said, now go. And then brought an opportunity for you to minister to somebody else and show them the comfort that you received from Christ. And so instead of judging Simon for his disbelief, he comforts him. Do not be afraid. And then essentially prophesies about what the future holds for him. From now on, you will be catching men. You'll be catching people. And I'm sure Simon was like, I'm so glad I'm not being killed, and I am so have no idea what he's talking about. I don't, I don't know what that means, but I'll go with it. And the end of the account says that they left everything they had and followed him. But here's what I want to focus on for the rest of our time together. And that's this, the third point. When it comes to building the church and reaching people for Christ, God chooses what I'm calling addition by multiplication just about every time. Addition by multiplication is the way to go. Let me recall you to uh, a portion of the scriptures where Jesus is betrayed. It's at the end of his life, his earthly ministry, and Jesus is betrayed by Judas, one of the 12, who has gone behind Jesus' back, told the Jewish leaders and the authorities where they can find Jesus, and that's how Jesus is arrested. Judas betrays Jesus for a very small sum of money. Well, Judas realizes what he's done, but he doesn't have godly sorrow like Peter has. He has worldly sorrow. And 2 Corinthians 7 tells us that godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. No one who's ever sorrowful in a godly way says, oh, I hated that. I wish that never happened. No, they're thrilled because God brought to their attention an, an opportunity to repent or a way that he could, somebody could come to Christ. Oh, wow, I'm a sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. That's godly sorrow. Judas doesn't experience that. Judas experiences worldly sorrow, which produces death. Sometimes figuratively, in Judas's case, literally. Because Judas can't handle what he did. He can't make it right. He doesn't repent. He doesn't come to Christ in faith. And he hangs himself. He commits suicide. Acts chapter 1 tells us about this. And so the 12 are down to 11. 12 minus 1 is 11. Jesus ascends into heaven. And one of the first things that the 12 do, they say, well, we're not the 12. We're the 11. We got to be the 12. And so we've got to replace Judas. And who do they replace him with? They replace him with Matthias. And so now they're back up to 12 again. That's addition as a result of subtraction. It's not a sin. It's not a bad thing. There's oftentimes you'll have to do that. But that's not how the ministry of the local church rolls. That's addition by subtraction. It's driven by necessity. Sometimes that's what you have to do. But it's not like they get themselves back up to 12 and they're like, okay, so as long as we're just 12, we've got to be 12. Not 13, not 11, 12. And so we're going to do this work through 12. When we lose one, we'll replace one, but it'll always be done through 12. That's not how the church is built. 
The church is built through addition by multiplication. Simon just saw what was no doubt the greatest catch of fish he'd ever seen. But it's an illustration of something greater. Jesus sent Simon out into the middle of the sea on a mission that he could never succeed in on his own. He just tried fishing during the night. He caught nothing. Now he's being sent out to the middle of the sea during the daytime and said, let down your nets for a catch. He could never do this on his own. And yet God brought the fish. And when it got hard, God brought him to safety. And so it's an illustration as if Jesus is saying, you know, Simon, I can multiply the fruit of your labors. You know I can do that, right? I can do that. I will do that. All I need you to do is drop the net. Drop the net. I'll bring the fish. I'll take care of those circumstances. I'm omniscient. I know where the fish are. I'm omnipotent. I know how to get them to you. Drop the net. And then Simon would join him in a mission of multiplication that would literally change the world. God is all about addition by multiplication. Do you know why? Because the stakes are too high when it comes to the gospel. We don't have time to mamby-pamby around with a one-for-one replacement method. The next time you're in line at Costco... You need to look around and realize that every associate, every customer, every child sitting in a baby carrier will spend eternity somewhere. Not might, will. The next time you're on a a Zoom meeting for school or a Zoom call for work, you need to look at every one of those squares and realize right before you is a very vivid picture of people who will spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. The stakes are high. The next time you pick up a Kroger click list, don't let the fact be lost on you that they probably substituted items wrongly. But that aside, the person who is packing the groceries into your vehicle We'll spend eternity somewhere. We're talking about gospel ministry here. Please don't ever forget that we're talking about life and death. Life and death. Not a better life versus a harder life. Not an easier life with lots of friends versus a harder life that's really lonely. It's, it's life and death. Life is short. Hell is hot. People matter. The stakes are really high. And so we don't have time to be piddling around with slowly but surely equipping someone, but only when a spot opens up, and then when one person's down, we replace that person. Ain't nobody got time for that. Jesus doesn't tell Simon to take his boat out into the water and take a rod and a reel and just sit there and hope he can catch a fish. One fish at a time. This isn't a sport. It's a job. It's a job. He would go out with nets to catch as many fish as possible. Why? Because he's not just fishing for fun because he likes to relax. It's a job. And he's got things to do. That's why Jesus says, put out into the deep, let down your nets. Not for one or two or a few. Let down your nets for a catch. They're out there, Simon. Now get out there, drop your net. I'll bring them to you, but let down your net. It's a vivid word picture Simon would likely reflect upon for the rest of his life. As he sees Christ work in his life for the rest of his life, he might never catch another fish. Talk about going out on a high note, right? 
This might be the last time Simon ever caught another fish for all we know. But instead, he'd be catching people. And instead of catching fish so that he could kill them essentially and eat them, he's catching people so that they could live. The stakes are really, really high. And so I want to show you three ways addition by multiplication works in gospel ministry. First of all, it's this. Addition by multiplication works only if everyone's active in ministry, not if a few are active for everyone. Addition by multiplication works if everyone is playing a part in ministry, not just a few active for the whole. You might recall recently me casting some vision for our campus saying, I long to see more people serving in ministry and doing so less often, as opposed to just a few people serving all the time, regularly. It's not that I don't appreciate the commitment of the few people. I do very, very much. But I really want to see more people serving in ministry less often. Now, that's not pragmatism. In fact, I can give you a whole host of reasons of why it's not practical to do that, or it's not the easier way to do it, because it's just easier to kind of set it and forget it. These people do this thing until the Lord calls them home, and as long as they're breathing, they're going to do their thing. That really makes a lot of sense. I love the rotisserie version. Set it and forget it. It's great. But it's necessary because it's not only my goal to have our positions staffed as a church, or to just know that somebody's doing some sort of ministry in some way. I gotta be honest with you, we have that. We're not longing, we don't have these gaping holes in ministries by the grace of God. We have things staffed. Staffing all the spots is addition by addition. We fill the spots. There's a spot, we fill it. We have to get another thing, we fill it. We started a coffee ministry, we fill it. And we tend to only add when we need to. So when there's a subtraction, we create an addition, just like the 12 did when Jesus was gone and Judas was gone and they got Matthias. We'll do that sometimes, but that's not what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following, it says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. So you'll remember on our grand opening Sunday, I said, in a sense, when I entered vocational ministry, I left the ministry. Because it's now my job as a pastor teacher to do my best to equip the saints to do the work of of the ministry in a variety of different ways. That's, multi- that's addition by multiplication. I'm one person, you are many people, and so it's my ministry to equip you to be in a variety of ministries. That's addition by multiplication instead of addition by addition. Peter steps down, someone steps up. Now, time won't allow me to talk about this as much as I'd like to, but suffice to say, I don't want to just meet the need. I don't want to just check the box just to make sure that we have the things that we need. Judas hung himself, so we got Matthias. Leadership development shouldn't be a response to a negative event. Somebody moving, somebody hanging themselves, somebody stepping down, somebody... Like, that's, that's not leadership development. That's just one-for-one one replacement. Leadership development should be a proactive, ongoing process because we believe in the gospel, we understand the stakes are high, and we know that we need to be about addition by multiplication because people need to hear the word. But here's the thing. It's actually far less exciting. It's far less exciting this way. See, addition by multiplication works if you're willing to entrust God with the fruits of your labor instead of craving the thrill of instantaneous fruit. 
The text we read today is exciting. Nets are almost breaking. Boats are almost sinking. But everything ends up to work out in the end. There's fish being caught when and where they shouldn't be caught. That's exciting. That's awesome. That won't soon be forgotten. But addition by multiplication is about the long game and training every part of the body to be involved in some way. Let me see if I can give you an example. Picture, if you would, how exciting it would be if in this very church God brought us a thousand people a month. A thousand people a month to hear the gospel. That means 12,000 people in a year. That means over 30 years, 360,000 individual people would have heard the gospel from Grace Fellowship Church. That would be exciting. That would be unbelievable. Look, some of you are like, I don't know where he's going. Like, there's a trick here. He's going to tell me that. Yeah, but they're all going to kill you. Like, no, no. There's, just roll with me. That would be exciting. Wouldn't that be exciting? Say yes. Good. Okay, it would be exciting to have a 1,000 people a month coming through the doors of Grace Fellowship Church. And we'd have to innovate because our nets would be breaking, right? We didn't build this net for a 1,000 people a month, but it would be amazing. How do we do this? Do we add services? Do we have to make changes to our facility? Do we start a new facility? What do we do? Like, we would have to think on the fly. A parking would be a nightmare. It would be a, a, a big, hot gospel mess. But it would be exciting to see a 1,000 people a month coming into our church. And like I said, 12,000 people a year, 30 years, 360,000 people hearing the gospel. Now let's imagine something else. Imagine you trained, you, you, trained one person each year to share the gospel with one other person who then trains somebody else to do the same. Let me make sure you understand that because those numbers can be confusing. One, one person, you train one person to share the gospel with one person who then trains somebody else to do the same. Look, you're like, oh, we're so little people. That's not nowhere, that's not anywhere near as exciting as like, blowing out the walls and adding services and doing more things. The only reason it's not exciting is because you're not doing the math. Because if that keeps happening over 30 years, one billion people will have heard the gospel. Billion with a B, bro. That's addition by multiplication where God works in you to work in someone else who trains that person to work in someone else who trains that person to work in someone else who trains that person to work in someone else. But it doesn't feel anywhere near as exciting because it's you and that person and then that person doing that and then that person doing that. But more people are reached. That's addition by multiplication. But addition by multiplication will only work if you're willing to entrust God with the fruits of your labor instead of craving the thrill of more instantaneous fruit, dedicating the full-time staff to a really targeted slick ad campaign to make sure that people understand and hear, and you leave it all up to our staff to make sure that people hear, and we're the ones saying, come and see, come and see. That's not a sin, but you realize it won't be anywhere near as effective as each person doing their part to the glory of God to serve in ministry for the sake of the gospel. Addition by multiplication. 
but it means even though it may not feel as exciting, even though it may not give you that instantaneous feeling of just hundreds and hundreds of people, in the long run, God gets all the more glory and people hear the gospel all the more. Why? Because every person does their small part instead of a small group of people doing six parts because they're so dedicated. It's addition by multiplication. But see, here's the other thing. Addition by multiplication only works if you see the weekend as the starting line for the week ahead. Remember I said when we had our grand opening, I don't want this place to be viewed as the finish line. It's obvious that that's a huge risk we run as a church that's been portable for eight years that we would say, ah, we finally arrived. We have a place. (gasps) Finally, we sit in the chairs and it's not just a small miracle that we come back because the chairs are actually comfortable. Ah, it's climate controlled. Ah, there's no beer spilled on the floor from a wedding that happened the night before. Ah, we have our own place. This is great. We have arrived. I said, I don't want this building to be a finish line. I want it to be what? A starting line. That we don't feel like, oh, good, now we just kind of sit back. Addition by multiplication only weeks if you see your time in here as a starting line, not a finish line. Not this everybody's working for the weekend stuff. It's everybody comes here so that they can go out. This is the starting line, and when we dismiss, we fire off the gun, and you run the race that is set before you. The fact that Simon caught more fish in one fishing trip than ever before was exciting, but it pales in comparison to what Jesus had in store for his impact on the world for the rest of his life. Great one-time experiences, moving things with a a crowd of people, those are wonderful as long as they serve as starting lines. It's wonderful to be reminded who we are in Christ, to be reminded of his love for us, to fellowship with the saints, with other people, to celebrate communion together, but it's a starting line. Friends, a thousand people a month feels better now, but it's not nearly as effective in the long run as every person consistently serving in their ministry over the long haul and training someone else to do the same. Addition by multiplication wins in the long run every time. And quite frankly, it's amazing what God can do through someone who's willing to throw out a net. He'll bring the fish. That he works through people who say, I'm going to throw out a net. A couple of years ago, my wife, Sarah, uh, led one of our ladies' Bible studies through the book of James. Um, I think it was James. I think it was James. Through the book of James, I don't know, a dozen, 15 ladies attended Thursday mornings. It was well attended. It went well. During that Bible study, my Sarah had another Sarah in that group, Sarah Getz. You guys know Sarah Getz? Wave, Sarah Getz. There she is. She was in that Bible study. And my Sarah went to that Sarah and said, I think you should consider serving in this way. More people could be reached. That's Sarah's slick ad campaign. You should probably, I think you could do this. I baptized this Sarah, like, what, three years ago? Just a few years ago, she's a new Christian She's untrained. She's inexperienced. She loves Jesus, loves people, and she was willing to throw out a net. So she did. The next lady's Bible study was through the book of Jude. Sarah led a Bible study in the morning. She led a Bible study in the evening, reached people who couldn't be reached in the morning for a variety of reasons. 
COVID hit. I don't know if you heard. <laughs> so quarantine happened. And so Sarah was instantly called to the ministry of Google Classroom for our four children. Unable to lead a study anymore. And we were shut down for a long period of time. So my Sarah stopped leading a study. That Sarah kept leading a study and moved that study online. Met straight through quarantine. Uh, While leading that study, somebody joined that study uh, that doesn't typically go to our church but was a regular attender of that study. In fact, she ended up walking over with her dog over here. I met her. She introduced herself to me. I didn't really realize that it was the same person. And then she said, hey, can I have one of those lawn signs? And I said, sure. And I said, how are you going to carry that back? You got your dog. She had a bag. I said, I'll just drop it off at your house on the way out. So she gave me her address. I dropped off one of those Great Fellowship Church, we're not closed signs, and put it in her lawn and went home. Okay. Well, it turns out that lady's sister died of COVID. But she was plugged into a community. And she was part of her Bible study. And so people were able to pray for her, care for her practically, take meals to her, send care packages to her. And the only reason that's happening is because she was willing to throw down a net. My Sarah didn't go to that Sarah and say, listen, here's what I want you to do, and I want you to start this study just in case there's a global pandemic and somebody joins your group who might have a sister who dies. What are you, crazy? My Sarah was like, can you throw down, I'm throwing down a net, but my net's only so big, can you throw down a net? She's like, I'll throw down a net. God does all of that. God brings people into the net, but through people who are willing to drop a net. Guess what? Sarah Getz reached out to someone else in her study, also named Sarah. That's not true. That would be really weird. I mean, like how many times, right? So she reaches out to someone else in her study. Her name is Elizabeth. Says, I think, we, I think you could do this. I think you could reach more people. Elizabeth's not a new Christian, but she's not trained or credentialed. Or she didn't go to seminary. But you know what she could do? She can what? She could drop a net. Sarah tells me she's got, like, people in mind. Look, everyone in her study is like, oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> look at me. This is addition by multiplication. This is an example of somebody willing to drop a net for the glory of God and see what God does because they realize it's not up to just the staff to do the things, but that God works through individual people to build his church for his glory and for our good. What about you? Every act of ministry is dropping a net in some way. I don't have time. I can connect any ministry team in this church, whether people are leading a community group or serving coffee, whether they're a biblical counselor or holding that door to the gospel. And it's not just like a stretch. Every person is part of the body, and the body builds itself up in love. How is God calling you to drop a net? Do you want to serve overseas as a missionary? Do you want to be part of our welcome ministry? Do you want to serve coffee? Do you want to be a biblical counselor? Do you want to serve in children's ministry? 
You want to lead a community group? I mean, what do you want? You want to be a campus pastor? What do you, how will God use you in dropping a net for his glory and for our good? It only works if everybody really sees themselves as part of the ministry. Otherwise, it'll just be addition as a result of subtraction over and over again. And we, quite frankly, don't have the time for that. Last thing before we close. I don't know much about fishing. I know that comes as a huge shock to you. But I've been enough times. I actually enjoy it. I just don't, I haven't done it a ton, but I do enjoy it. I've been enough times to know why they call it fishing and they don't call it catching. You know what I'm saying? But, did you ever notice? Nowhere does Jesus call Peter in this passage to go fishing. Do you know what he calls him to do? Go catch him. Luke chapter 5, verse 4. He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a what? For a, a little louder, for a catch. It's a sure thing. Luke 5, verse 10. Do not be afraid. From now on you will be what? Catching. Say it again with me. From now on you will be catching men. We go fishing, we call it fishing. We don't know what the outcome's going to be. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm on that. I'm going to call it catching. Because I have a plan and I'm going to work through people and the end is guaranteed. I just want my people to be dropping nets like it's their job because it's their job because people need to be saved and the gospel ministry needs to go forth. Let's go not fishing, catching together for the glory of God and for the good of those who need to know him and his gospel. Father in heaven, we are so uh, grateful and delighted for how you work in the lives of people, for how you bring about great and glorious things through humble beginnings, through people who are not Experts, people who are not super trained, people who are not credentialed, but people who are willing to drop a net, firmly believing that you will fill that net with the exact fish, the exact number of fish that you will take care of your beloved church. And Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts and in our minds to continually be willing to drop a net to see who you'll bring for your glory, knowing that you are in control, are sovereign, are good, are merciful, and kind. Burden us, Lord, with a desire to serve you, to serve others, and to help others to understand how they can not only escape the wrath to come, but can have a glorious relationship with you and the gift of eternal life. Do this for your name's sake, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.